do not go out and look for creative financing deals. You go out and look for deals. However, you're already looking at deals. Keep doing that. It's all in the deal analysis. It's when you see that the property doesn't work with traditional lending for whatever reason, that's the opportunity. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. I want to introduce to you Ash Patel. He's a full-time commercial real estate investor. He's going to be doing the interview today and a lot of them moving forward. I'm still going to be doing interviews, just not as many. And he is going to ask tough questions while still building rapport. That way it's not awkward. He's a good friend of mine. Join me in welcoming Ash Patel. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm here with today's guest, Bill Ham. Bill is joining us from Atlanta, Georgia. How are you today, Bill? I'm doing very well. How are you? Wonderful. Bill's a full-time real estate operator and syndicator, and he has 15 years of experience and has a portfolio of 1,100 units. Bill, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Absolutely. Well, first, thanks for having me on the show, number one. Number two, yeah, I've been, as you said, in the business uh, almost 16 years now this summer. I started off as a corporate pilot in life, flying airplanes for a living. Figured out that a pilot was really important from takeoff to landing, not so important on the ground. Pilot on the ground is kind of worthless. So it really just turned out the job wasn't as exciting as I had originally thought it was going to be. And I started seeing friends of mine doing real estate. And this was back in 03, 04. And they were flipping houses. And I thought, wait a minute, we were all out at the bar last night. We were all doing the same thing. I woke up and went to work. You guys woke up and flipped a house, made as much money as I made all year in a month or two. And I'm like, what is wrong with this scenario? So I really started looking into that. And I spent about a year reading, studying, just gathering all the real estate information I possibly could. I did my very first deal was a duplex cash flow at about 300 bucks. That's if nothing broke and about 10 grand saved up. And I quit the aviation career, just went into real estate full time and I've been here ever since. Fantastic. Tell me about that deal. Yeah, it was a duplex. It got seller financing on that one. And to that point, my first 402 units, I actually completed with all some form of creative financing. So not using traditional lending for my first portfolio. That particular deal, I got a friend of mine, got seller financing on, and I held it through a seasoning period, the time frame that the bank would allow me to refinance it and pay off the seller. And that's what I did. I got in, and that was my grand opening into the real estate world. So, Bill, you said your first 200 units were seller financing. I'm sorry, how many? 402. Your first 402 units were creative financing. Correct. One, how did you learn about all these creative financing strategies? And what are some of your most unique ones? First question is easy to answer. I just made it up. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't know. It was really a function of survival. People like to ask me that question. Like, where did you learn all that? I didn't. I was just making it up. What I learned to do and what I teach people now is how to create value for a seller. And you got to understand that creating value for a seller doesn't necessarily have to do with bringing the seller a bunch of cash. It can be creating value in other manners. And that's exactly what I did. So I went out and I found sellers that had a problem, some kind of distressed asset, some kind of issue. 
And I sat down and I looked at the deal and I said, okay, how can I solve a problem for this seller in exchange for getting access to the real estate without using money, which was convenient because I didn't have any. So that's basically how I got started. Now, some of my favorite techniques are seller financing and master lease options. Those are my two favorite, but I've done everything in between from line of credit to debt partners, to hard money lenders, to credit cards. Don't recommend that one. All types of financing, but those are my two favorite, master lease options and seller financing. Let's dive into that because on these forums, there's so many people that want to get into real estate, but it's lack of capital that holds them back. So I think we can help them a lot with some of your ideas. So let's go into the master lease option and seller financing. Seller financing is the easy one to explain. That's exactly what it sounds like. The seller is going to finance the property for you. They're going to act as the bank. And that stops you from having to go into a bank or to a lending office qualifying for the loan to get the deal done. So the seller is going to be the bank. You're probably still going to have to put down some money. If that property needs repairs, maybe even exchange some of that down payment money for repairs. I love doing that. So instead of putting cash down and then bringing more cash to fix up the property, I just try and swap out repairs for down payment. The catch with seller financing is the seller has to have full equity. They themselves cannot have a loan. If they do, people kind of do what they call a wrap or a subject to financing. I don't care for that personally. I think you should just do a master lease option instead, but that's the other technique. But yeah, that's sort of what seller financing is. A master lease option is a rent to own scenario. So for example, Nosh, let's say you have a million dollar property and for whatever reason you want to sell it and perhaps I can't get financing, not because I can't get it, but because the asset is distressed. What I may come in and say is, all right, listen, I'm going to rent your property with the right to buy it someday in the future. Now you and I are going to agree on a price today based on the assets value today. And under this rental agreement, I'm hopefully going to bring the value of that property above what we've negotiated the price for, which is our option to purchase. And then I have the right to buy the property, but I'm going to be able to buy that property at a discount to its future value. Hopefully that's the idea. So if I have an agreement with you for say 1 million bucks and I make your property worth $2 million, then I have the right to buy it for $1 million. Catch there, that's not a refinance. So don't think that you can bring the value up to $2 million and then go and refinance this $2 million property and pull out $1.8 million and walk away with cash. It's still an initial purchase. So it's going to be 80% or whatever the loan to value is of the purchase, which would be $1 million. But at least I'm borrowing 80% of $1 million and the property's worth $2 million. So that's kind of the idea. It's a great way to also wholesale if anybody's into wholesaling. Just sell the contract. Master lease options, when I think of those, I'm thinking larger properties. Does that work with single families, duplexes? Absolutely. Yes, it works. The type of real estate is irrelevant. It's really about the seller. It works on houses. I've done it from single family to multifamily. The largest master lease option I ever did was 108 units, $5 million. The smallest one I ever did was on a house. And I have also given master lease options on property that I didn't want to deal with anymore. Maybe it was a neighborhood that had gotten a little tough. I didn't feel like managing it and there were other people coming along. So I felt it better to just let them have it and give them an opportunity into the business while I was out doing larger properties. So I've given them and received them. So Bill, to a lot of people, this may seem too good to be true or too easy. How do you find these sellers that are motivated to do this? And is there a lot of education involved? 
Because when a seller lists a property, they probably assume I'll list it, sell it, get my money. Are you educating your sellers quite a bit as well? Sometimes, yes. First of all, what people have to understand is that a good deal is 90% seller, 10% real estate. And I think people kind of miss that concept and they really focus on the asset and the property and the value and the cash flow. But if you don't have a willing seller, you don't have a deal. So you really need to focus on the seller. What is motivating this seller to sell? Well, a problem, hopefully. So if a property is cash flowing, it's in good shape and the seller can just take it out of the market and sell it, they probably will. So is a lease option or seller financing offer going to work in that scenario? No, it's not. And there's the catch. You're looking for a seller that has a problem. Then we ask, why do they have a problem? What is the problem? And can I create an offer that will solve those problems and limit my cash outlay and my risk getting into this distressed asset? So a lot of people right now are probably thinking, wait a minute, the market's white hot right now. People probably don't have problems. They're just selling them. I agree. These techniques are very cycle specific. They don't work great when sellers have a lot of options available, meaning the market is just going up and up and up and they can just go sell and and probably get asking price plus a dollar on whatever their problem property is. We've seen that, but that's about to change. And that's why I'm bringing out this information right now is because going forward, I think we're going to go into a different market cycle. And what I always tell everybody is watch your lenders. The lenders are the ones that always lead the market cycles. There's an old adage, a bull market does not die of old age. It's murder. Well, it's debt <laughs> that is the one that, that takes this good market out back and shoots it in the head, right? What are our lenders doing today? Well, if you're looking at agency debt, they're tightening up the criteria. Not interest rate. Ignore interest rate. That's an illusion. It's how easy is it to qualify for that loan? And the answer to that is not nearly as easy as it used to be. And so agency is really starting to tighten up. We see community banks stepping in to kind of fill that gap. They're a little easier to work with right now. But the catch with community banks is once they get their balance sheet heavy with a certain type of asset, they quit lending on that asset. So it's very hard to tell if the community bank has an appetite or will continue to have an appetite for what it is you're trying to borrow. And I think with the trade volume going on in the market, lending is about to start pulling back against a lot of, not all assets, but a lot of them, especially distressed assets. That's when we use creative financing. That's a great outlook. You've got the pulse of the lending market down. And I don't know that a lot of people look at that. We'll get back to the show in just two minutes, but first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. One of the hardest tasks to balance while scaling your real estate investing business is accounting. Well, realestateaccounting.co takes care of the numbers for you so you can grow your business and revenue. REA helps property managers and investors save time and money by automating back office, financial, admin, and accounting. Starting is quick and seamless from accounts payable to reconciliations, taxes, and reporting. Go to realestateaccounting.co forward slash best ever to find out how REA clients save on average 30% by leveraging their accounting services versus hiring in-house. With CPAs on staff and being owner-operators themselves, REA knows the challenges of your growing real estate business. Try it risk-free at realestateaccounting.co forward slash best ever. And remember to mention the Best Ever podcast sent you to receive up to $1,800 towards onboarding and services. That's realestateaccounting.co forward slash best ever. If you're not sure where to start investing or need help taking the next step, mentorship and coaching is one of the best ways to get going. 
Think Multifamily is a leading apartment acquisition and education company who provides true one-on-one coaching to help you invest for your family's future. Their servant leadership approach will guide you to successfully scale your real estate business or assist you to diversify your investments in multifamily. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how they help working professionals just like you transform their future through partnering and community. In fact, the majority of real estate investors who partner with Think Multifamily get involved in a general partnership within six months. Thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching highlights the partnerships, joint ventures, and resources all available through the coaching program. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how to become a member and get involved. Back to the creative financing. You mentioned having sellers share their story. How do you get that story from people on what their issue is, why they're selling, what's their pain point that you can solve? The old two ears, one mouth routine, listen a lot more than you talk. Ask some specific questions and then shut up and listen. Why are you selling? Sometimes you get a straight answer. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes I find that you have to ask the same question a few times in sort of a different manner to get a real answer. What we're doing is we're looking for the motivation. What is the pain point? A lot of times you don't have to ask at all. You just listen to the seller and listen to their story and they'll tell you what bothers them. People love talking about their problems. So you're listening for a landlord that's burned out. You're listening for a landlord or an owner that perhaps didn't have enough money to bring up the property. Maybe they cash flowed, but they allowed it to go into physical disrepair. So listen for these pain points. That's the real motivation. You'd be amazed how often a seller is not actually motivated by the cash they're going to get from a deal. They have other agenda. They only know to sell the property in order to solve their problems. Burned out. Don't want to deal with it anymore. Sell it. Inherited it. The family member passed away and all of a sudden this family member is an unwitting owner of real estate that they didn't know how to manage and operate. What do we do? Sell it. Yeah, but the problem for that can be solved in other ways besides the sale. It's just the seller that doesn't know any better. And yes, you do need to probably do some education with the seller, but the education is educating them on why your offer creates value. And this requires picking up the phone and having a conversation with the sellers. Or a realtor, depending on if you're working with realtors. Yes, but with someone, correct. Yeah. So how do you figure out who you're calling? You have a list of foreclosures, houses, wholly owned properties. Do you just go down the entire list or are there things that jump out at you on what to look for? Yeah, you don't. And that's the biggest question. How do we find creative financing deals? You don't. And I really want to drive that point home. You do not go out and look for creative financing deals. You go out and look for deals. However, you're already looking at deals. Keep doing that. It's all in the deal analysis. It's when you see that the property doesn't work with traditional lending for whatever reason, that's the opportunity. The reason I say you don't look for creative financing deals is because it can come off poorly. If you start reaching out to realtors and sellers and saying, hi, Bill, nice to meet you. Do you have any master lease option deals laying around? You got any seller financing in your back pocket? No, 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 no. That comes off as you're not credible. You may not have money. That is usually a quick turnoff to a seller or a realtor. So you don't approach it in that way. You just look at deals the way you always do. If you can go over to the bank, borrow money, buy the deal, and it all works, then do that. When it doesn't work, then we pull out creative financing. And that's what I want everybody to stand is that creative financing is not the only way. It is an extra way. It's just increasing your probability of finding a good deal. 
That's it. So I don't want people to go out there and say, hey, Bill told me to only do seller financing. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is just an add-in technique. So just add it to your arsenal. Absolutely. So you're skeptical on what's going to happen to the economy moving forward. You started investing in 0304. You went through the 2008 downfall. Yes, I did. How did you fare? And what are the big lessons that you learned from that? I did really well and then really horribly. My recession kind of hit a little bit later. I did well in the beginning because I was buying a lot of foreclosures, but ultimately I wound up catching the falling knife. And so that's actually a long answer. You have to understand what I call the three pillars of real estate, and that is debt, exit strategy, and market cycle, not in any particular order. So we got to know what market cycle we're in and where do we believe the economy, the city, the neighborhood, and the asset that we're talking about. Where is this thing going? What's our exit strategy? Are we holding? Are we flipping? What are we doing with this? And then you have to get the right debt that allows both of those two things to occur simultaneously, exit strategy and the market cycle. So I did real well in the beginning of the recession and then did really poorly because what I did was I started getting short-term loans. I got some loans in 06, 07, three years comes, they renew the mortgage. Great, no problem. The next three years come along and now we're in 2012, 2013. Well, I was in middle Georgia at that time and we were in a very down slump cycle and my loans came due. They didn't foreclose. They just said, hey, we don't want to renew the mortgage. It's not a problem. You just write us a check for a few million dollars and everybody's happy. (laughs) Well, nobody really wanted to refinance those properties at that time because the debt was difficult. That was a $175,000 lesson. I had to get out a check and recapitalize those assets or give them to the bank. And that was a very expensive lesson. So that's what I mean about exit, market cycle, and debt. And you have to line up those three strategies to be successful in all market cycles. So what are you doing specifically to prepare for the next market cycle for the downturn? I am being cautious in my underwriting. That's what I'm doing. I'm being conservative. Right now, I feel that a lot of people that are underwriting assets from single family to multifamily are overvaluing some of the real estate, not all of it, but some of it. So we are getting our war chest together. We're getting our networks together. We're keeping our investors in line. We're doing a lot of the soft techniques that go along with real estate my partners and I are very active and we look at deals, but we're also very regimented and disciplined. I'm not going to go do a bad deal just because everybody else is overpaid. I'm just not. And if we have to sit tight on the market, then we will. I suspect there's going to be a shift. Reason being cap rates and prices have just gotten a bit carried away and the metrics don't really support some of those values. And that's where I'm kind of thinking we're going to see a shift. I can clarify that a little further by saying, I don't believe the upper parts of real estate, the A's and the B's, the newer ones, I think will be fine. It's the older properties, our affordable housing in America that I think is actually going to be in a lot of trouble here soon. Why? Age. Those buildings are just getting old and the capital expense needs are starting to really dial up. Plumbing, roofs, electrical. These are things that are going to need to be addressed. They're large ticket items. They're very expensive. And when you're looking at a property that already doesn't cash flow very much, and then all of a sudden the plumbing's all gone and the electrical and this and the other, that's not going to be a good day for somebody. So what's the solution for those properties? Creative financing. Going out and finding a seller that is in trouble, that has overpaid and made this mistake and by no fault of yours is now in some sort of financial situation. You are the solution. 
you didn't cause the problem and you're here to fix it. And if they don't understand that you're the solution, then you need to move on and find someone who does understand. And that's why I go back to the 90-10 people, real estate, seller real estate. Yeah. So that's a good contrarian view, getting your war chest together. Whereas a lot of people right now are just dying for deal flow, overpaying just to keep the flow moving because they've been used to doing that for a number of years. It takes a lot of discipline to sit on the sidelines. It's financial hot potato is what I call that. And the music stops. Somebody is going to want to hold in that hot potato longer than they mean to. Yeah. So tell me more about your journey. We got the duplex. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about that ride up. I spent three or four years early on doing single family. Maybe about four or five years doing single family. Um, A lot of flips, a lot of wholesaling, a lot of what everybody does out there. I wound up starting to hold single family assets to create a small portfolio of rental properties. Started to realize that there was very little economy of scale in that model. And that it was actually a lot easier to manage and operate small multifamily of 10 units, 20 units, 30 units, something like that than 10 or 20 houses spread around the city. So my first sort of quote unquote multifamily was a nine unit in a really bad neighborhood. I did the nine unit and then I did a 20 unit, a 27 unit, a 44 unit, 108, 152, and then so on up into larger assets. So not any sort of blast off tip of the rocket ship kind of growth. It was very linear. It was step-by-step. It took years to build that portfolio and it was a journey of one step at a time. And I started small and over time with experience grew larger. So nothing particularly interesting. I didn't start off with a lot of money. I did not start off with a lot of experience, but I did not go big quick. I think that's a big mistake a lot of people make is they try and go too big too quick. It's okay to start small. Just get started. So your bottleneck was not a lot of cash. Correct. You were getting better at the creative financing How did you solve the cash problem? Reputation. By going out and doing these deals and building that momentum, I ultimately started to, one, build up my own amount of cash flipping and wholesaling and doing things of that nature. Two, I started to build a reputation of someone in the business and in the market that was a problem solver. And that reputation probably started to bring me more deal flow than anything else. People realized that I could fix issues and they'd tell their friends, they'd tell their neighbors, anybody else that had a problem, piece of real estate. Back then, that was a lot of people. So they really started bringing me these deals to solve their problems. So that's what I teach people now is that your reputation is actually probably one of your biggest calling cards in the business. And some of your larger deals, what was your best creative financing strategy? Well, I got seller financing on a 152-unit deal that I also actually syndicated. So I went out and the seller gave us 80% uh, loan and I went out and syndicated the other 20%. So I went out and found limited partners, raised capital from the limited partners. We did a private placement memorandum, just like you guys do as well, I know. And we went through the whole syndicated process with seller financing, held the seller financing for two years. And then after that two-year window, we refinanced into a Fannie Mae loan paid back our investors a large percent of their equity. So they have very little at-risk capital in the deal. Their cash flow now and their returns are huge. And I still own the property today. It's been almost 11 years now and I still own it. Was that your first syndication? It was actually. It was my very first syndication. Can we dive into that a little bit? Absolutely. 152 units. Correct. Seller financing. Yes. So if I'm selling a 152 unit apartment building, I want my cash. 
Tell me how that conversation went, how you approached the seller. So this property had been listed. It had been out there on the market. And the technical answer is the term is called concentrated economic driver. (laughs) What that means, especially in multifamily, when you have too many tenants that are anchored around one type of income. So if there are too many students, if the corporation leases too many of the units, and that's what we had, the lenders said, wait a second, if this one company pulls out, your occupancy tanks. Well, what this was, was a medical facility in middle Georgia that had done a master lease or sort of rented uh, about 20% of our apartment complex there. I think it was 30, 40 units, something like that, which was great because it was almost kind of like Section 8. We got a guaranteed check at the beginning of every month. It was awesome, but the lenders hated it. And that's what they said. Fannie and Freddie said, no, you have too much concentration to that company. We will not underwrite this deal. And that is how we kind of went back to the seller and explained seller financing and why that offer solved their problems. And what we did was we operated the property for that two-year window. And over that two years, we lessened the exposure to that particular company and released those units out to just normal residents. And within that two-year window, we were able to take that property from what would be considered distressed to something that Fannie Mae actually was willing to fund. And that's how we did the refinance. We wound up paying that seller off and we still own it and have a Fannie Mae loan on it now. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Mark your calendars for the best ever conference, February 24th through 26th, back in person at the Gaylord Rockies Convention Center. Join the experienced community and phenomenal speakers for a weekend of learning the best commercial real estate strategies, building relationships, and quite frankly, having fun. As a bonus, once you purchase your ticket, you are put into a mini mastermind group of eight to start making connections with other commercial real estate investors immediately. Get the lowest prices right now at BEC2022.com. That's BEC2022.com. What did you have to put down on that property to the seller? 20% 20% and the purchase price was roughly two and a half million. So whatever 20% of that was about 800 grand, I think 900 grand, something like that was our raise for that deal. Probably 500 grand. Yeah. And we had some repair money and I think we had an acquisition fee. Okay. So that's the next question. How does the seller know you're not going to run his property into the ground? They don't. So you've got to sell yourself and your company Correct. on what you're going to do. How are you going to turn it around? And what were some of the things you did to reduce your exposure to the one medical company? Just not renew leases? Just not renew leases. Yeah, correct. We didn't go in there and demand they get off the property or anything of that nature. We certainly didn't want to damage the relationship, but we just kind of explained to them the scenario and we worked hand in hand with them. The real answer, I just moved them to other properties of mine. So I took that tenant base and I went to that company and said, look, I don't want to be disruptive to your company and make you have to relocate all these people into the city. I tell you what, I'll leave other units of mine vacant and we'll just transfer those people from this unit to to this other unit, seamless as we could be. So I I tried to be as easy to work with as possible. We could have just thrown them all out. We certainly did not want to do that. So that's how we did that. And that took a few years. So it really helped occupancy in my other units. And it was a win-win for everybody. And that's how we ultimately got in there and and did that deal. Great example of how you are a problem solver. (laughs) It pays well. Very good. That's a great strategy. Thinking outside the box. So what are you working on now? Same thing we always do. We're looking for assets. We're looking for investors. We're looking for partners. My partner and I syndicate our deals and we're out there looking. It's just the metrics are a little tough right now. 
I see a lot of properties with just very low cap rates. And I don't think that's necessarily the safest model. But what I'm doing at the moment is what I call a flight to quality. So I'm moving into nicer, newer buildings because if I'm going to overpay, I just want to overpay for something nice. And I think everybody at the moment is going to technically overpay a little bit. So let's just be careful about what we're going to overpay for. You overpay for a building that's really old and has a lot of hidden repair items coming up, capital expense. That's the gift that just keeps on giving. That's not a good day. And so what I'm looking for are newer buildings that I believe at least will not have any sort of capital expense surprise because I'm expecting to hold these assets today, five to seven years. Over the last five years, I think we've been able to hold assets for two years or less. I think that's about to change. And to get the value, you're looking at a longer hold window. Well, let's look at the building. Does it have the physical legs under it to really last five to seven years without costing you a lot of capital expense money? That's my thought process. Yeah, that's a good outlook. Back to the 152-unit building, how did you go about raising the money from investors? And what were your typical investors? Were they friends and family Doctors, lawyers. Yes, <laughs> all the above. Network, network, network. Always being networking. And that's what it was. And so you always need to be building your network and you need to be refreshing that network, resetting the network, constantly staying in touch with that network. So that's what we did. We've just always had a good following of people that basically say, hey, Bill, when you get your next deal, you let us know. And I've always kept those leads warm and communicate with them on a regular basis. So when we finally did have a viable deal, I was able to go back to my close network and say, okay, who's in? Raise your hand. Let's go. And that's how we raised the money. But we raised the money long before we actually found the deal through relationships. And that's a big mistake people make is they think, well, once I have a deal, then I'll go out and start meeting people and raise the money. It does not work that way. You cannot go out and build a viable relationship with high level investors within 90 days. And it's a very risky concept. So we raised the money long, long before we actually found the deal. Good advice. And what were some of the major repair items you had on that building? Right out of the gate, roofs. We refinished the pool area. So we had to resurface the inside of the pool. The fence was too short. So we had to bring that up to code, redeck the pool. There were some units that needed to be turned. Exterior paint was one. So just some general housekeeping. Nothing super, super major. It wasn't in that bad a shape. The distress for that particular property was more on the economic side than the physical side. It was that overexposure, the concentrated economic driver to that one company. That was the and, real renovation. And you still hold that property today? Still hold it today. How many years has it been? Almost 10. So your investors yeah. got their money back because of the cash out refi? Correct. In year two, have any investors expressed an interest in wanting you to sell? Not in the slightest. As a matter okay. of fact, I can't remember the last time we even heard from any of our investors. We mail them checks and they don't ask. They love us. They don't bother us. The only time we hear from our investors is when they say, hey, you're late on the check. <laughs> we send out reports. We send out communication. They're just cash flowing and they're good. They don't bother us. And they're playing with the house's money now. They are now. Yeah. Because I think they've received back about 80% of their investment. So if an investor wanted to liquidate to get out, would you accommodate them? Absolutely. Our private placement memorandum, our PBM, says that they need to bring that to the general partnership first. They can bring us the deal, and we have the first right of refusal to purchase their equity, which we would because that's a really good deal. If not, then they have the right to bring that equity to the other limited partners within the group. 
If they're not interested, then they have the right to take that out and they can sell that equity on the open market for whatever value they can get. But we must approve the people or group or whomever they're selling that equity to for Homeland Security reasons and and such and such. But yeah, that's how that works. They have the right to sell it. We just have to approve the sale. And then how do you determine the value of their equity? Is it based on initial purchase? It could be on initial purchase really today because they've owned that asset for so long and that they've received back a fair amount of their investment. I would probably value that equity on cash flow, just like we analyze any deal. I would say, what's it worth? How much are you receiving in cash flow every month? And then I would value that revenue stream accordingly. And then if they don't accept your offer, they can go out, get a fair market value offer, right. and then you have first right of refusal. Correct. Yeah, it's a great. They just can't sell it to anybody. They couldn't go sell it to terrorists. We have to vet whoever the buyer of that equity is, again, for Homeland Security reasons. Got it. Bill, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Get mindset. You got to have the right mindset. And that's a very cliche thing to say. And people say that all the time. Oh, it's mindset, mindset. What mindset? Be tolerance for failure. You've got to understand the art of failure. You've got to understand that failing is not bad. We're taught from an early age in school, don't fail, get the answer right, get the test right. That's fine in grade school, but it's a horrible point of view. And in the business world, I have probably a good solid 85% fail rate on anything that I do new for the first time. I go out and we practice and we do that. And so I think the main thing that people have to have is a mindset of understanding what failure is. Now, when people ask me this question, I always like to ask my own question. All right, Ash, what is the definition of insanity? Repeating the same action over and over again, expecting different results. What is the definition of practice? Getting better at what you're doing. There you go. So is practice insane? No. By the way, go look up the definition of insanity. That's a meme. That is not actually the real definition of insanity, number one. It's a social meme that we've kind of all come to understand as a truism, and it is absolutely not true. So that point of view is telling us that going out and practicing is insane. And I'm saying the only thing insane is the concept that practicing is insane. Practicing is not insane. It is failing over and over and over, not expecting a different result, but doing it and demanding one, practicing until you get one. And that is not insane. And that's what I mean by failure. You've got to have a tolerance for practice, which means of course you're going to get it wrong. You're new. Tiger Woods didn't come out knowing how to play golf. People just want to come out knowing how to do these sports and things. Like I didn't come out how to do real estate. Neither did you guys. It's a learning curve. Get used to it. And it's a part of the business. So just be ready to practice and don't let anyone ever tell you the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Not true. (laughs) Good to know. Bill, are you ready for the lightning round? Let's do it. All right. What's the best ever book you've recently read? Recently read Chris Voss's Never Split Difference. That's a recent one. Not best book I've ever read, but a recent one. Yeah. What was your biggest takeaway from that? The biggest takeaway from that was really the title. I guess my takeaway would be creativity before compromise. He didn't say that. I said that. Creativity before compromise. Stop and think, can you create value before you just make a lazy negotiation and go for somewhere in the middle? It takes real art and real strength to create value through creativity. That's where you get paid. So creativity, not compromise. And that's a theme of what you've done to accomplish where you're at. Bill, what's the best ever way you like to give back? Education. I love teaching. I love doing stuff just like this. 
I love helping out students. Education, education, education. That's my way. And Bill, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? If you want to email me directly, it's bill at gobroadwell.com. And Broadwell is B-R-O-A-D-W-E-L-L. It's bill at gobroadwell. If you're an investor and you're looking to do business with us, you can go to broadwellpropertygroup.com. And we have a little section there for investors. Please fill out that information and we will be in touch with you directly. Very good. You know, I forgot to ask you, are you still a pilot or did you give up that career? I did. I'm not a pilot anymore. No, I don't fly airplanes anymore. Oh, and and I completely forgot to mention, and I'll selflessly plug this as well. I've recently written a book on creative financing, by the way. It's called Creative Cash, and it's on Amazon. So that's another way that certainly didn't do that for the money, but another way that I've been given back. So uh, Creative Cash on Amazon. Wonderful. Bill, thank you again for sharing your story today. Absolutely. Your creative financing, I think a lot of people think it's a lot more difficult than it is, but it's a lot of perseverance and it's finding solutions to people's problems. So thank you for your time again. Best ever listeners. Thanks for joining us. Have a best ever day. You too.